This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, this is Rob Fay filling in for the Jazz Joe Hall Show this week. Thank you for stopping by to check out the podcast. Richard Rogerson, CEO and founder of Packet Labs, helps us improve our cybersecurity. Andrew Weaver walks us through the challenges that we could be facing with our water consumption in the coming years. And a Mario Canseco interview ends up seeing Jerry Mayer Judson and I debate the best or the worst of holiday food. Thank you for reviewing and thank you for listening to CKNW. Cyber security. Some of us assume we just go and get our Norton's box every year and we're good to go. But you know what? The hackers out there, they usually have a key for that lock. I want to bring in a guest that I've been looking forward to talking to for about a week now. Richard Rogerson is uh, kind enough to join me from back on the East Coast. He's the CEO and founder of Packet Labs Limited. Richard, good evening. Good evening. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, you know what? I I love this because I think cybersecurity, we just assume, you know, it's a real quick fix or we call our IT department. But your business, Packet Labs, is actually a group of hackers, ethical hackers that make sure that everything's on the up and up. Yeah, absolutely. So we get hired by companies of various sizes from, say, the smaller businesses all the way up to the larger enterprises to put their security to the test. So they hire us to try and attempt to break in and understand where they're weak and, of course, how to make their security much better. Now, when we think of this on a larger scale, you know, every once in a while we hear about a large company that's had a data breach. Is there a commonality between these breaches? Like you think of the banking sector, the health sector, all the information that we have with these trusted organizations and industries. Do you see one commonality where everybody seems to drop the ball? Definitely. And I think it's security awareness. What security awareness refers to is the education that we give people to arm them against um, someone who's trying to dupe them. So really training our staff and making sure that they're aware of the various scams that could take place and making sure they're ready for those, you know, unwanted emails that they might get. You know, that email with the the O2 good um, um, pretext saying, you know, there's a discount on this, this product. You know, you need to jump on this offer right now. You know, when we teach people and we give them the cues to say, these are the things to get out, to look out for. They become a lot more suspicious of these actors and they become more aware of their presence. So when they do get those phone calls, they're a little bit more prepared for them. How often, Richard, are you training your staff? I would imagine it's a bit of a cat and mouse game. You guys come in, um, you know, you're learning about the latest ways that people are trying to infiltrate systems. Do you feel like this is constantly shifting every year? It's definitely constantly shifting. And and for us, you know, even the entry point to our team is a 24-hour challenge where we require staff prove, you know, hands-on keyword that they can break into systems. And then we continuously train them year after year after year to really level up their game. And it's really that cat and mouse game of how easy is it to compromise a network versus, um, you know, what are the resistance that we're likely to face? And for, you know, general people, it's on an annual basis at a minimum. And I think that, the most successful organizations that train their staff, it's, it's really baked into everything. It's the posters that are in the, the meeting rooms. Um, it's the, um, the emails with the warning banners that they're, you know, an external um, party and to treat the email with caution. Um, but it's, it's really every day that we have to do this. 
to make sure everybody's aware because it only takes one email, one click uh, for someone to end up um, compromising a network. And it's you know just making sure that we're constantly testing and training and, and, and verifying our staff are following these recommendations. Richard Rogerson is CEO and founder of Packet Labs Limited. They uh, try to poke holes in companies' uh, data to make sure that they're as secure as possible. Richard, let me let me put it to you in its simplest terms. Let's say I click that link. What happens? Yep. So when you click that link, what often happens is there's a lot of pre-work that goes into getting ready for an attack. So what the attacker would do is they would understand what is the computer that you're running and what are the software packages I'm likely to encounter? And what they would do is they would find a vulnerability in those software packages. So a security patch you haven't applied. So what they'll do is they'll send an email um, or some other type of uh, pretext where when you click on the link, it may actually compromise your computer or it may be more of a social engineering. So they may ask for you to do something urgently, but it's generally either a technical compromise. So compromising your computer or it's, the human element actually attacking the user and trying to give them some very, some fake pretext to say, this is why I need this urgently. This is, you know, I need your password to get into your system or I have your password, but I also want your two factor token. Um, so you have to make sure you're trying all these different things to make sure everybody's really thinking about security all the way through. I'm kind of curious, has AI changed the game a little bit? Like you think of voice authentication and things along that nature. Um, has that really made everybody kind of go back on their heels and be like, boy, this is another layer we got to deal with now? Absolutely. And it's made uh, um, hacking a lot more uh, quick for uh, an attacker to take on. You think about taking the time to tediously make a landing page to dupe somebody to you know, click on this link and it looks believable. Well, with AI, you can just write two sentences and ask for it to, to make a page like that. Um, so it's making the attacks a lot, um, a lot more easy um, for the attackers. But it's also, on the other side, it's helping the defenders start to realize some of these attacks quicker. So there's, you know, there's both sides to AI, but I think it definitely does make... Um, AI definitely does make you know the landscape a bit more challenging for for most people because it, it does make these attacks a lot easier. You know why would I take the time to write out a series of text messages if I can have someone um, or AI write the text messages in the native language? Because a lot of the attackers they're from foreign countries where they don't have you know um, the right law enforcement to go in and step in and interrupt these types of things. So they may have language barriers, but with AI the language barrier kind of goes quickly out the window. It makes it a lot easier for someone to be able to pull off these attacks because you can you can write in whatever language that person that you're targeting is speaking. Boy, I, I hadn't even thought of that. That's amazing to me. Yeah, you're right. You could do it in any language. You could do it at any time. Banking, it's the last thing I'll ask you, Richard. Is that one industry that they uh, try to keep you away from or do they ask you for your services? Because I, I got to think right now, if I'm a bank, uh, I'm... I'm totally susceptible, and I got to think there's a lot of people coming at us. Is that an industry that you feel is vulnerable? So the banking industry definitely invests heavily in cybersecurity. They're one of the first that have really done a hu- made a huge investment in cybersecurity. Um, but the other side of it is that they're also prime targets because you think of, you know, if you can break into a company and change the balance of your account, that is a pretty devastating attack. Further, if you can actually take that money out of the, the bank, it becomes a lot more dangerous. So definitely banks are investing heavily in cybersecurity, and we've done a lot of work with various banks throughout Canada to help shore up their defenses and test their applications, their systems, their infrastructure, all of their stuff to make sure that uh, they have a second set of eyes on them to 
be able to understand where they're weak and where an attacker would be able to take an advantage, take advantage of a specific system or application the way that's set up. So you think like the banks would launch a new mobile application, they would bring someone in to hack that application to test and put it through its paces to understand where it's weak. And that, you know, that may very well be Packet Labs who's sitting in that seat. Yeah, it's great information. Richard, thank you for staying up late for me. All of us on the West Coast do appreciate it. And again, I'll direct people to Packet Labs um, to make sure that if they do, if they're with an organization that's looking for some help, they can go to packetlabs.net. Thank you for your time this evening. Thanks, Bob. Take care. Awesome. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Kind enough to join me to talk about the fact that right now we are snowless in Vancouver, like they're sleepless in Seattle. Kind enough to be joined by Andrew Weaver. Andrew, my first question to you is right now, obviously, the ski hills are uh, a little caught off guard by how warm it's been. Uh, The businesses surrounding them are probably thinking, boy, there's nobody going on the hills. At what point do we kind of sit back and say, boy, this might be a problem come the summertime if we don't get some more precipitation? Well, the, the seasonal forecast is pretty clear. Um, it's well above normal temperatures moving forward and drier than normal conditions. So, uh, we, you know, BC Hydro, for example, is going to have to start worrying about that right now for their uh, spring power for, uh, forecast. And, uh, you know, the ski hills are going to likely have a, in our area not such a good year. And this is the type of thing that my community, the climate science community, has been pointing out will occur more and more frequently as the years go ahead. And uh, it, yeah, we're just seeing some of the beginning phases of that. I've always been curious to know how we would adapt to the changes because, you know, you can have your theories on climate change and what have you, but I think just more I look at um, the way that humans react to situations where all of a sudden summers look a little bit different and water usage is a little bit different. Do you see at some point we will have to adjust uh, like across the board the way that we look at water and see and how we use it as well? Oh, 100%. And one of, the, one of the places that needs to adjust more than others is actually Vancouver, because for some odd reason, uh, large parts of the city don't actually pay metered water, uh, which doesn't actually con- um, bode well for uh, conservation. You obviously want to pay for what you use, but uh, for some historical region, there's lots of, part, lots of regions of Vancouver that don't. And, and, and you don't value something unless there's a price on it. In terms of water availability, uh, climate change is, is not going to give us any shortage of water overall, but it's going to create an issue of water variability. That is, we're going to get more water when we don't need it and less water when we do. That water when we're going to get is going to come in the form of rain, more likely than snow as the years go on, and that uh, doesn't bode well for snowpack feeding various um, rivers, etc. So, of course, that leads to issues with respect to fish stocks. It leads to issues with respect to power generation, and it leads to issues with respect to water availability if we don't have the appropriate reservoirs to capture that winter uh, precipitation that's coming in the form of rain now instead of snow to more and more extent and in increasingly larger amounts. 
Andrew Reaver joining us here on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Uh, I loved an article that you wrote back in July and you were kind enough to post it on your website talking about, and it was right in the middle of June when we were having our warmest June ever. Uh, it was in the midst of a hip, uh, heat wave and you put some great charts out there that showed just how how much things are moving forward. And then you mentioned a few other countries, and I'd really like to kind of broaden this conversation. You talked about Vancouver struggling with that, but where could we look at and say that's how we need to do it? Well, I like to... uh there are countries that have really taken two two approaches. One is the approach to mitigation, means stop putting out those emissions that are causing the climate change in the first place. You can look to a country like Great Britain, where the emissions are more than 45% below 1990 levels, because the country as a whole uh, went forward and developed policies because they knew this was something they had to, to, to deal with. And they wanted to be leaders in this regard, because those people who, who you know developed the, the solutions early on stand to benefit of others adopt those solutions. In terms of adaptation, the uh, no, the, the um, high latitude uh, uh, countries in Europe, Scandinavian countries, Iceland, places like that, have done enormous uh, work in terms of, of changing their natural resource practices in order to be more sustainable, to be able to adapt to climate change. In, we're still stuck in the in the dark ages here, to a large extent. In, 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 in British Columbia and Canada, you know, we do things like we can walk and stake the land for mining, which is bizarre. Our, our forest tenure practices are, are very old and not conducive to the kind of long-term sustainability of, of forest conservation. So there's a lot that needs to be changed because we've just, we've been so blessed with so much. We haven't worried about it in the past, but I think uh, now is the time for us to do that. And again, these fire, the forests are, are, are in trouble with respect to fires, particularly the boreal forest region and those uh, kind of pine, uh, pine, interior pine forests. But again, all of these, both climate adaptation and climate mitigation are entirely solvable problems. But what we need is to actually get on with it and to actually support those doing it rather than trying to hang on to the past way of doing things which are not going to work in the future. I mean, this is not, I don't like alarmism. I don't think that's helpful in advancing climate solutions. But really, uh, nor is denialism because, you know, w- what we want is a pragmatic uh, approach moving forward recognizing that climate change is very, very serious. But any serious problem also presents itself as opportunities as we solve that problem. And that's where I hope we focus. Water availability is one of them. We're going to get lots of water in BC. They're going to get lots less water in the U.S. We know that this water availability is going to be reaching crisis points in southern U.S. places. So what are we doing now to think about the future, whether that be building bigger dams whether that ironically be converting oil pipelines to water pipelines to ship our water south. Who knows? But we should be having these conversations now. Well, I'll tell you what, Andrew, that's a conversation for another day for sure. I, I, I hate that it came up against the clock because I think that's a great point. But, Andrew, thank you for this, and thank you for making time for me during the holiday season. Please, let's talk again. A pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you. Andrew Weaver, who's a professor in the School of Earth and Ocean Science at the University of Victoria, also the former leader of the Green Party. Boy, he slipped that in right at the buzzer that maybe we need some pipelines that aren't just oil, that water could become a commodity on that level. That's a really interesting uh, way to look at that. Okay, let's talk food. And I love talking food. Jerry Mayer Judson, kind enough to join me. Jerry, good afternoon. Well, good afternoon. I love when we get into holiday topics. I've, I, I'm not lying to you. 
I thought this summer I was going to, you know, maintain my figure. And then I got yeah. to the holidays and I thought I was going to maintain my figure. I'm 0 for 2 so far this year. <laughs> Me too. And that's fine. I think it's okay on Christmas. Whatever. Food is too good. And we're holiday food in particular is something special. And it's something that interests me because I feel like it's divisive. There's always, well, how do you feel about eggnog? How do you feel about turkey on Christmas and all this stuff? People love it and people hate it. So I talked to Mario Kitsenko. He's the president of Research Co. And I said to him, Mario, I feel like we're a nation divided. (laughs) We are. There's, There's a complexity, I think, with a couple of factors. You know, a lot of the stuff that we eat during the holidays has dried fruit. You look at some types of mint spice, you look at the fruitcake, you look at the plum pudding. And the drop in plum pudding certainly caught my eye. You know, from 52% to 47%, it's a big drop. And this is a very traditional thing uh, that comes from both sides of our ancestors. You know, it's something that was popular in Britain, something that was popular in France. And now we have 47% of Canadians who say, yeah, I'm not going to try this. I'm not really interested. The way in which Albertans feel about fruitcake, it's just off the charts. You know, (laughs) there's only about 30% who like it. So if you're in Alberta and you want to send somebody a gift, uh, and if you send fruitcake, I think they might take it the wrong way. Uh, But eggnog, you know, eggnog is is fascinating. Huge levels of support, if you will, uh, in BC and in Alberta, a little bit lower in the rest of the country. And in Quebec, I blame translations. Uh, It's lead the pool. Yeah, it's chicken milk. milk. Yes. Do I really (laughs) want to drink this? You know, even those of us whose exposure to French is essentially coming from whatever we are seeing at the back of our grocery thing, it's not that palatable. So maybe there's a rebrand that could be implemented uh, to bring eggnog to the level that it has in the rest of the country because Quebecers (laughs) are looking at the label probably and saying, yeah, I'm not going to try this. I'm going to stick with mulled wine. Yeah, no, merci. I don't want chicken milk. I'm curious about you. Like, where do you stand on on eggnog? Oh, I've always been a big fan of eggnog. Yeah, um, growing up in Mexico, you couldn't get it in the store. Oh. And uh, my father-in-law uh, used to make it from scratch, and it was just unbelievably delicious. They liked it a little bit warmer, which is kind of what you get when you have those eggnog glasses that they sell at some of the places. But it's it's an interesting thing because it's something that wasn't really big in Mexico. You know, you had to travel abroad to try something like that. And uh, he tried it once during one of his trips, and he started making it every Christmas. So... Um, that was one of the reasons to always be there on Christmas Eve, even if it wasn't your turn to be with that family, just <laughs> to try family. the eggnog. <laughs> and Rob, we were talking off air, and I believe we each oh represent my. one camp on all of these foods. And I don't stuff. think I've ever talked to somebody that is the opposite of me on all of the three major Christmas things ever. <laughs> so we're opposed on eggnog. Which you like. I love eggnog. What is it about eggnog that you like? I think it's because it is seasonal and forbidden. You know what I mean? Like I can't get it during the rest of the year. So there's the appeal. Ah. Um, I'm also, I like to put it in my coffee cause it's, like I don't often just drink straight up eggnog. Like I'm not a freak like that. Sometimes I put alcohol in it, but that's I neither I I don't endorse that. But uh, yeah, I put it in my coffee over the Christmas season. Why don't you like it? It's just too thick. It's like gravy. I, I like I I, I I don't know. I just think mm, sweet gravy. No, it's like, yeah, sweet gravy. <laughs> I don't know. I, and I don't know what nog is. <laughs> That's true. That's a linguistic quirk. I have no idea what nog is, and I don't know how they make the eggs nog. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But anyways, okay, so we're different on that. Yep. Christmas cake. Which you mean the cake with the spices and the candied fruit in yes. it. Yeah, do not like that. I love that stuff. Why? That is a huge holiday tradition. You can hammer that thing with rum. I guess, but the, can't you just do 
drink rum otherwise. Why do you need to yeah, a candied fruit? Like Did you know wild. you're not allowed to take fruitcake uh, through U.S. Customs because it's too thick and they can't scan it? Did you know that? I, I learned did that. Not, how, did you, about, how did you learn that? I was talking about fruitcake uh, with Jazz before the holidays. And because he's also, he doesn't mind fruitcake. Jazz tried to bootleg a, a cake Jazz across the border. Jazz did not try to bootleg, but someone texted in on the text line and they're like, did you know that you can't take fruitcake across international lines? And I Googled it and they are correct. That's interesting. It's so, it's, you know, contraband. So guy, maybe I like it. I had a guy call into the other show and he spent 10 minutes on air and I swear I let him run. And my, I got called into the office the next day <laughs> about how he tried to get his cat across the border oh, and how they weren't letting him and what? how it was like a big fiasco and da, 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 da. And I, so I just kept asking him like, so what did you do? What were your options? Like, what was your argument? And we just had this whole conversation at the end of the segment. I had time for no other calls, <laughs> <laughs> no sports though. at all. Uh, very quick. The last one, Turkey, yeah. Turkey. I don't like it enough to make it myself. Ugh. Do you love turkey? If you brought out turkey right now, I would actually probably ask if Jonathan could do the next segment so I could just eat my <laughs> just turkey. Just turn off the mic and it's just you and the turkey. Really? You like it that much? I love turkey. That's that's wild. To do, but you don't eat it during the year, do you? Do you save it all for holiday it's time? It's definitely holiday. But I will say okay. this. I will say this. I scoured. I actually asked the listeners on the weekend show can you send me your turkey recipes? Because I was responsible for the family turkey Ooh, this year. Big job. And ended up going to YouTube and followed Gordon Ramsay's recipe to the T. How'd it go? It was fantastic. Mm. He's a little aggressive, that Gordon Ramsay. A little bit. He's I, we, we make steaks according to Gordon Ramsay as well at home. And yeah, it's a, I feel like he's yelling it at me, but it all it's for my own good. He's like, Rosemary, in. I'm like, okay, I <laughs> get pan. it. <laughs> yeah. Hot pan, Hot right? Pan. And he works really fast. There's he a lot does. of pausing as well. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.